0: Syzygy episode 66 inscrutable neutrons and perplexing pulsars And welcome back for another edition of the Syzygy Podcast. My name's Chris Stewart. I'm in York. I'm talking to Emily Brunsdon, who's across the other side of the country. Hi, Emily. How you doing?
1: Hello. Yes, I'm doing very well, thank
0: you. How are you getting on with the uh, the whole isolation thing? You good?
1: Well, I think astronomers sort of have a bit of a jumpstart on this because we're pretty good at isolating ourselves in remote (laughs) facilities around the world Um, the only difference is i'm up during the daytime
0: instead of the night yeah yeah you're sort of professionally equipped for this particular this is this is where you guys come to the fore isn't it you really should have just taken over right this is our time we can we can rule under these circumstances fantastic yeah
1: so long as there's no clouds
0: Well, hmm, you're in the wrong country for that, I'm afraid. But listen, today we're talking about astronomy, not about diseases and isolation. We're talking about astronomy, and in in particular, we're talking about neutron stars and pulsars. Now, if that sounds a little bit familiar, that's because you've been listening to this podcast for a while now. And you might remember that back in episode 45, which is like 20 episodes ago, uh, we talked about the biggest possible pulsar and maybe the biggest pulsar that that could ever be that had had been spotted out there in the heavens. And that was pretty exciting for astronomers at the time. Well, one of our listeners by the name of David Weingartner got in touch with us and said, hey, I've just been listening to that. I've got a couple of questions. Now, if you are a long term listener, you'll know that we do say on every episode, hey, listen. If you want to get in touch, if you've got some questions, just send us a message and maybe we'll do an entire show about it. Well, guess what, David? This is your show. We've taken your questions about pulsars and neutron stars and we've gone, yep, we can do that. What do you reckon, Emily? Should we do that today?
1: They're such good questions. We thought, you know what, we just can't can't do it in a few seconds. This really merits a little bit of discussion. and some exciting new stuff that I learned
0: on the way as well. Yeah, and that's that's always the best one, where it's not just Emily saying, well, here's stuff that we know. It's Emily saying, did you know? I just found this out, and this is awesome. So that's what we're doing today. We're We're drilling down into neutron stars. So before we get into David's questions, I guess, Emily, we should probably start with, what are we talking about? What's a neutron star, and what's a pulsar? Should we start with neutron stars?
1: Yeah, yeah. So neutron stars are the kind of Um, end products of very very massive stars so these are stars that live their normal part of their lives they're normally about uh, eight times the mass of the sun or larger and that means that when they die instead of what the sun does which kind of becomes big and puffy and fluffy sheds all its outer layers and leaves behind this object we call a white dwarf then uh, there's too much mass involved in these stars and they at the end of their lives they explode in a supernova and they leave behind again, a, a sort of compact remnant, a sort of um, very condensed object left behind, uh, but in this case it's like a it's a ball of neutrons. it's a neutron star
0: it's a it's a big lump of basically yeah atomic nucleus kind of soup, isn't it it's it's very, very strange. okay, so unpacking that a little bit, you've got a really big star, not really, really big, but you know you said sort of something like eight times the mass of the sun, and the sun is a fairly sort of small. Generic, common or garden variety, bog average star, isn't it? It's it's not a particularly special third. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're not talking huge, crazy big stars. We're talking bigger than the sun by sort of an order of magnitude. And when they come to the end of their lives, in other words, they run out of all of the the you know nuclear material that they can fuse together to hold up against the gravity, then supernova. That happens. Big explosion, one of the biggest. big boom. right? Yeah,. Yep. And loads of stuff gets thrown off into the surrounding universe. But what's left behind is this little ball of nuclear matter, neutron stuff. how does How does that happen? How do you get that? I mean, the explosion I kind of I kind of kind of get. but just take us through that again. How do you get from end of life? Can't hold this up anymore. supernova. Neutron star.
1: Yeah. So, well, the whole the whole point of a star's life is it's always got this fine balance between uh, the forces that are trying to condense the star to contract it, make it smaller, and that's gravity. Gravity which depends yeah. on its mass. And then the forces that are holding up the star against this gravitational crushing, which is uh, when the star in its normal part of its life, this is the the force that's producing from the the fusion that's happening in its core. It's producing all these photons. It's pushing out with this energy from those fusion reactions and holding itself up that way. But you turn that off, you turn off fusion, because it's run out of stuff to fuse, then it can no longer hold itself up against gravity, and that gravity crushes things down. Uh, And depending on how much gravity there is, then you can crush down to the size of a white dwarf, or you can go further than that, and you can crush down to, to, it's kind of, one I went to think about it is you're you're actually crushing together all the protons and the neutrons in the nucleus uh, sorry protons and electrons in the nucleus um into the nucleus and then you're getting this neutron sort of material left over so proton plus electron gives you neutron
0: yeah I mean it's that's that's a slightly simplified but actually there are there are nuclear reactions that say look if you've got a positive charge and a negative charge we can we can you know, whack those together to make a neutron. And so you've got neutrons plus all the neutrons that, that were already there in the, uh, in the atomic nuclei, and you just got this one big nuclear soup. Um, and the, the explosion, the supernova part, how, rem, reminds how does how does that happen? You've got all this collapse happening, But why then the extraordinary boom outwards?
1: So you sort of get a bit of a bounce back off this uh, kind of object that can't crush any further. So once you get some of the layers, some of the interior layers start to fall onto this, but then they bounce back off and then they cause an enormous pressure wave that pushes out through the rest of the layers of the uh, X star.
0: Right. So you're collapsing down and it forms this incredibly dense ball in the middle. And then everything else collapsing down onto that just bounces off it. Because it can't, you know, it's it's so dense that at this point you can't collapse it any further. And it just forms this incredibly um tough solid wall that the other stuff bounces off. And that's that's an extraordinarily fast and violent explosion. But what's left behind is the little ball of stuff. And it is little, isn't it? I mean, you've taken something which was really big and turned it into something which is really small and dense.
1: Yeah. Just a few kilometres across is kind of the radius of a typical neutron star.
0: A few kilometres across. I mean, that's, you know, the size of, well, I'm mean, i here in York. You know, that's just across to the other side of the city. And it's not a big city.
1: Yeah, York York could make a great neutron star, kind of within the city walls even. Then uh, you could turn that into a neutron star. And you'd have to cram in pretty much the mass of the sun <laughs> into that sort of space.
0: So small, small and dense. And that's a neutron star. And it's and it's weird i mean this is matter like nothing we we ever see it's it's very very peculiar stuff what are some of the features of neutron stars other than its insane density and very very small size like what What's weird about a neutron star that makes it interesting well, to look at?
1: what's not weird about a <laughs> neutron star do you, where is do you start? maybe a shorter question. <laughs> uh, but what we have to always remember is that these things aren't actually, you know, just a lump of neutron stuck together. These are some of the most exotic states of matter that we um, can imagine, let alone be able to try and measure them. So there's probably structure inside a neutron star, something Lots of weird um, extremes, if you like, of the physical kind of parameters that we've been able to measure. There's maybe some weird quantum soupy stuff going on in the core, and maybe some kind of crust, which is a little bit more understandable with our current um, experimental work. But neutron star research is the extreme stuff, right?
0: (laughs) I would have guessed that in in a similar way to like you look at a star, and a star is already fairly extreme. I mean it's an and it's it's an enormous nuclear reactor with all sorts of bizarre plasma stuff having, happening around the outside and huge magnetic fields and stuff. It's already pretty extreme. But you get fairly hazy around the edges. Like, you know, exactly where a star stops and starts is, is a little bit hazy. And I would have guessed that a neutron star would be kind of similar, that you don't just suddenly hit this uniform wall of, of nuclear material. You'd have weird stuff on the outside and other weird stuff going down towards the middle and right in the middle, uh, probably a blob of even more weird stuff. Like, it, It would be interesting in one of these things.
1: Yeah. Even the textbooks have question marks in the middle (laughs) of neutron stars, right?
0: And it's not an easy experiment to do. It's not like you can just go and visit one and go, so what are you? What's going on here? Let's Let's get a big spade and dig some out and have a look at it. You can't do that.
1: No. In fact, the only way we can really go and measure neutron stars is measuring a type of neutron star called a pulsar.
0: Right. Okay. So this takes us on to the next part of of this. What's a pulsar? So
1: a pulsar is a neutron star that has a beam of radiation that it's pointing out along its magnetic axis. And like a lighthouse beam, that um, sweeps around as the star rotates. And if we're lucky, then it will sweep through kind of the line of sight between us and the, the pulsar. And so we see this kind of um blinking effect if you like, a very regular pulse that's coming from the magnetic axis of the star.
0: It's like a like a cosmic lighthouse. Okay, so where so it's spinning, these things are spinning, and we've talked before about how when things collapse under under the force of gravity, any spin, any rotational momentum that they had to begin with, as a very large object, you know, they, they hang on to that as they collapse down. And as you collapse down like a like an ice skater pulling in your arms and legs, you spin faster. And so neutron stars, pulsars, can be spinning incredibly quickly, can't
1: they? Yeah, the fastest ones thousands of times per second.
0: Like that's even something the size of a small city. Spinning thousands of times a second is, that's a good effort. That's, that's quite a lot of spin. But more than that, it's not just the spinning, it's the the big magnetic fields. Now, you mentioned the magnetic fields, and that's related to these beams, these sort of lighthouse beams that come out. So magnetic fields from where? What? Why?
1: Yeah, well, a a bit like um, how you've compressed down all the rotational information that at the start had into a very, very condensed blob, there's some... uh, slightly different physical ways, but you kind of condense down the magnetic field information. So these things are very, very highly magnetic, very strong magnetic fields. And those magnetic fields aren't aligned with the rotation axis. So if you imagined the lighthouse, the lighthouse has a rotation axis, which kind of goes up and down, and it's a, a vertical rotation axis. But the axis that the beam points out on is horizontal. It's pointing along the coast. So those two axes are not the same thing. If they were, then you'd just be pointing your beam up into the sky and, I don't know, only Batman might be able to see it.
0: <laughs> It's not, not a particularly useful lighthouse. Yes, the, the beam from a lighthouse needs to be sort of scanning along the coast and out to sea. And that's kind of what's happening with these pulsars. You're saying that the, the pulsar is spinning around on its axis and the magnetic fields are at an angle to that. And that means that you've got these magnetic fields which are rotating around the axis a bit like a lighthouse. So what's the beam then?
1: So the beam has come from radio light. So what we see is uh, a process, it's called synchrotron radiation. Uh, You've got lots of little charged particles and they uh, move in in relation to the magnetic field. And uh, if you've done any electromagnetism kind of 101, then charged particles in magnetic fields, you get interactions and you're going to get, in this case, you get a bit of radio light, which is released from these mostly electrons spiralling in the magnetic field uh, of the pulsar.
0: It's a bit like a a, a version of um, the Earth's uh, aurora, isn't it? Only kind of on steroids. You know, you, for, with the aurora, you've got charged yeah. particles from the solar wind streaming out towards us, um, getting funneled from the Earth's magnetic field down towards the poles, and as they get concentrated down around the poles, if I've got this right, and I may not have because it's been a very long time since I've looked into it. But I think those charged particles coming down towards the poles and getting concentrated and they kind of just, you know, there's some energy release there. And that come, we, we see that in the form of, of the amazing lights in the sky with the aurora. This is sort of a supercharged, highly supercharged version of that in a way, The charged particles, yeah. energetic particles going uh through interacting with the magnetic fields of the of the neutron star as it's spinning around incredibly quickly and just shooting out as these crazy energetic beams.
1: Yeah. I think that's actually a reasonable analogy. The only difference being with the um aurora is that these electrons and so on, these charged particles are then going on to interact with atoms in our atmosphere. So they're interacting with nitrogen, oxygen and that's what's causing all your colours and that's that's why it's visible light. Yeah whereas these um, charged particles in the neutron star pulsar are just releasing radiation just because of the spiral that they're doing, and that's in the radio.
0: Okay, so we have a neutron star, which is spinning really, really quickly, has these big magnetic fields, it's shooting out these beams of energy off into the cosmos, and that's what we call a pulsar. One of the things about pulsars is that They do spin very, very quickly, and they spin incredibly regularly, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. So we can measure this radio signal. So um, the early pulsars that we were detecting, we were measuring kind of a few per second or, you know, one blip blip every few seconds. Um, The uh, millisecond pulsars, so these are these pulsars that are really going for it, spinning thousands of times per second. Uh, there's a few examples of some of these that are still, even to this day, more precise than atomic clocks.
0: Wow! So, how precise are we talking about? I mean, you you were just saying you know these are spinning at, you know, hundreds or thousands of times a second. Like, what what's the level of precision?
1: Well, I can I can answer that very very well. So,
0: <laughs> go on then.
1: <laughs> we've got my new favorite pulsar which is J0437 slash 4715.
0: Ah, that classic, yes.
1: So this pulsar has a period, so this is um, how long it takes to do one rotation, Mm -hmm. of (laughs) 0.005757451936712637seconds.
0: I just kept waiting for you to stop and you just kept going. Hang on, how many how many significant figures is that? That's like
1: So that is 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 10 11 12 13 14 15 16 17 18 significant figures. So to give you yeah, to give you an error on that, it's 1.7 times 10 to the -17 is That's the error.
0: That's nuts. That's absolutely Okay, right. So when we're talking, when we're talking really quite precise, you know, that these things spin very regularly, we're not mucking around. You know, it is hundreds or thousands of times a second to an extraordinary, unparalleled degree of accuracy. Like what else in the universe can you think of that is that accurate, that is that precise, the only thing yeah, I can really. think of that might come close, and I'm not I'm not quite sure how they compare, is the experiments that have been done on the the magnetic moment of electrons. You know, that that these are the tests of quantum mechanics and those have been tested to like I thought it was thirteen. Or maybe fifteen significant figures. So this is this is on the same order, like, and that's nuts. This is a big ball of of neutrons in the sky spinning around. Like that's that's crazy. Okay, so
1: yeah, like that's only just some pulsars, though. I mean, not, most pulsars sure. aren't as accurate as an atomic clock. I mean, they're pretty good, but they're not as good. But even
0: to find one, like that's you know, <laughs> like, like that's not that's not just a lucky coincidence. That's saying something quite fundamental about a pulsar right? That that it's possible to have one that is spinning that precisely. Okay, so we have this picture of these crazy things, which are made of crazy material that are spinning crazy fast with potentially crazy amounts of precision. Okay, so that's setting, setting the scene for David Weingartner's questions. So he said, okay, I've just done listening to episode 45, if you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it, where we were talking about the biggest neutron star ever discovered, possibly the biggest neutron star possible. And he said, at one point, Emily, you said that astronomers think that more massive and younger pulsars spin faster. So that was something that apparently you said in that episode you know does that sound plausible does that sound like the sort of it thing sounds, you'd say it sounds
1: like something i might say <laughs> sounds
0: like the sort of thing you'd say so he says if a younger pulsar rotates faster does that imply that as pulsar's age their rotational speed slows down i mean it's a good question right if you can you know distinguish between younger and older pulsars and say well the younger ones more massive ones spin faster that implies that as they age they spin slower and yet, hang on, we've just talked about these things spinning to an incredibly, like, 17 significant figures degree of of precision. So what is it, Emily? Are they incredibly precise spinners, or does their period of rotation change as they get older? Which one is it?
1: It's both of them. Of, of
0: course. course it is. <laughs>
1: of course <laughs> it's it all is. All the answers. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, so pulsars do slow down as they age. Um, maybe we can... Feel uh, some solidarity with them about yes. that. Yes, I mean, who amongst um, us
0: can say otherwise?
1: So, and um, maybe the clue was when I was saying that actually the most regular pulsars are these millisecond pulsars. They're the fastest pulsar right. sort of group that we know about. So we it's actually really tricky to age a pulsar, right? To say, actually, you know, pulsar over there, your J numbers, etc. you are 100,000 years old or you are 70 years old, right? That, that's... That's a really difficult measurement to make.
0: Yeah, I guess unless you saw it happen, you know, unless you saw the pulsar formed, like how would you? How would you go about aging something like that?
1: Well, we do have um, a way to do it, which is called the characteristic age of a pulsar. Okay. And it is based on this idea that they do slow down over time. So the reason why they slow down is because you are losing energy from your system, right? This is not a closed system. When you're putting out any kind of energy. In this case, it um, includes the radio light that's being emitted by the pulse itself. But what's also important for pulsars is that they've got this um, kind of magnetic braking effect, whereby the magnetic field is kind of interacting with the rotation, with all the charged particles in its vicinity. So there's a very, very slow loss of energy over time
0: right that that makes sense you, you're not going to get energy out without that energy coming from somewhere so let's just sort of agree that sure that makes sense
1: yeah so what you can do is calculate the characteristic age and it's a fairly easy calculation uh, once you've done the measurements which are probably yeah. a lot harder <laughs> so first of all you've got to measure the period of the pulsar so how long it takes to do one spin hmm And then you've got to measure the rate of change of that period.
0: Okay, so how quickly that period is changing, yeah.
1: Yeah, so this is what we like to call in physics uh, a P dot, which means we're looking at the rate of change of the period.
0: Right, so P, P for period, and the dot means changing over time.
1: Yeah, so if we take the period and divide it by twice the rate of change of, over time, mm-hmm. then we get this characteristic age. Okay. Uh, I can give you an example. We've got a, a friendly pulsar that um, some people might be familiar with. It's called the Crab Pulsar.
0: Right, in the Crab Nebula.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, so in 2007, we measured the period of this pulsar to be 0.0331 seconds.
0: Okay. And I mean, that's...
1: there's a slightly larger error on that. Yeah, one. I was about to say,
0: that's fairly precise, but I mean, pfft, come on. It's not even trying.
1: Yeah. Uh, and But we're also able to measure over, because we've been measuring this pulsar for uh, about 50 years now. It's one right. of the oldest ones that we've known one about. One of the better known. Yeah. Uh, so the we know the rate of change of this one. It's 4.22 times 10 to the minus 13 seconds lost every second.
0: <laughs> right. Okay. Let's wrap our heads around that one. We're talking about a rate of change of the period and the period is measured in seconds. So we're talking about... How much change in seconds per second?
1: Yeah. So it's increasing by four point two two times ten to the minus thirteen seconds every second.
0: <laughs> which is which is weird, but it does make sense. It does make yeah. sense. Okay.
1: It's one of these ones where the units cancel, but we actually it's sometimes more useful to actually keep them in there just
0: to remind us what we were talking about. <laughs> yes, we could cancel those out, but we're we're choosing not to. Now that's a very small number. It's not changing rapidly. It's what did you say? Ten to the minus thirteen? Seconds, seconds
1: per second, per second, yeah, yeah. So okay. yeah, they're not they're not huge changes, um, and they're very very difficult to measure. I mean, you do have to really be looking at these things for decades to be able to get the precision that you need on these measurements. Okay. Uh, nonetheless, we can put those numbers into our new equation for the characteristic age. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh and we get a number which uh, comes out as about 1240 years.
0: What's that I mean I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around what what that's based on because I would have thought like not every pulsar forms exactly the same. You don't get pulsars formed, I would have thought, spinning at exactly the same rate as soon as they're as soon as they're created because that would depend on the size of the star and and so on where they that they came from, right? Like the, the the new baby neutron star is not exactly the same as every other baby neutron star, right?
1: They're not exactly the same, but they're, you know, relatively close. Okay. You know, there's only a small range of possible um, rotations and possible masses that we've been able to nail down onto okay. these pulsars. Right,
0: so so the, you're making... So it's
1: an approximation. Right,
0: you're making it, the approximation but, that to, to, within a certain degree of, of happiness as an astronomer, all neutron stars are born the same, effectively. And so you're saying, well, if this one is spinning at this rate and it's changing at this rate, then it must be this old. Is that the idea? Yeah. Right, okay.
1: So the characteristic age of the Crab Pulsar was 1,240 years old. Um, we actually know exactly when this pulsar was born. We're very right. fortunate because the um, Crab Nebula um, is a supernova that exploded Uh well, just over a 1,000 years ago, uh, in 1054 AD. Right, uh, so we can nail that one down people. real well. Yeah, so we know exactly when it was born. So that actually gives us a real age, if you like, yeah. of 950 years.
0: And what did, what did you say you got from the calculation? It was 1,000 and something?
1: 1,240.
0: So that's not bad, given the assumptions. Like, if, if you'd said it, yeah. it's, you know, 100 years old or a million years old, then you would have worried. But, you know, you want to take it to the nearest thousand from the actual age and and the age from the calculation, then they agree perfectly,
1: which is yeah. pretty good. And let's be honest, we're not really dealing with many pulsars that we know that are only about a thousand years old. Many of yeah. them are going to be significantly older than that.
0: Right. Okay. Well, that's good. Okay. Well done, astronomers. So that seems to be working. So getting then on to the, get, getting back to the question, which was younger pulsars rotate, Faster, So they are slowing down as they age, but but very, very slowly. It takes a long time. Yeah.
1: So what we can do is start to then, you know, do one of the things that scientists love to do the absolute most is then start to put some of these data onto a diagram. Oh, yes. I mean, everyone loves a, nice
0: a diagram. Yep. Yep. Nice graph. Get some axes on there. Throw some points one. up.
1: Yep. It's it's a good old famous pulsar age diagram. It's called the P dot diagram.
0: Well, good. Okay, so tell us, take us through it. What are what are what are our axes?
1: Okay, so on your x axis, your bottom axis, uh, what we're plotting here is how fast the pulsar is um, spinning. Mm-hmm. So a period from small period, which means it's spinning fast, to a very very large period, meaning it's spinning quite slowly. Right, going left to right. And then on our y-axis going up, we have the p-dot, our rate of change. So at the bottom, then we've got the fact that it's going to be slowing down slowly. And at the top, it's going to be slowing down quickly.
0: Quickly. Yeah. Okay.
1: And what we notice is that most pulsars sit kind of in the middle. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) They're averagely spinning and they're averagely slowing down.
0: I mean, I guess that kind of makes sense. You know, it, you're going to have a common or garden variety pulsar and it's going to be doing common or garden variety things. Okay, fine.
1: But the interesting bits are the things where, you know, we can start to do interpretations. It's the, the bits that aren't the, the ordinary, the average bits. Sure.
0: So what happens when you get away from the norm?
1: Okay. So we look at, first of all, where pulsars are born. So mm-hmm. where you've, you've just had your supernova, you've got your brand new baby pulsar. Where is it going to sit in this diagram?
0: Okay. Now, if I'm... Can take a stab? So they're going to be spinning the fastest, right? So they're going to have the smallest, shortest period. So they're going to be over on the left side of this diagram. And they are, I'm guessing, going to be also their rate of change is going to be fastest because... Because the speed of their rotation means that their magnetic fields are doing all sorts of crazy things. And they're spewing out energy all over the place. And that's going to mean that they're losing energy the fastest. So they're going to be changing the fastest. So they're going to be top left.
1: Fantastic. Hey, well
0: I could be an astronomer. Yeah, That'd be awesome good bit this. of reasoning too. Yeah. I, I
1: like it. Yeah. So pulsars are born in the top left part of our graph. And then they sort of move in a diagonal-ish way down towards the bottom right as they get older
0: right because their period gets longer and as their period gets longer i guess that also means that their uh, rate of losing energy is going down which means their rate of change is going down so they're traveling diagonally down yeah they get slower and slower but they also get slower and slower slower and slower How's that for and summary?
1: If you go all the way down to yeah, to the slow, slow, slow part of the diagram and to the bottom right. Mm-hmm. This is actually a special region of the diagram which is called the pulsar graveyard.
0: Ah. Where pulsars <laughs> go to die. Oh dear. How what's what's your sort well, of slowest? What's your slowest pulsar? Like you know, how how slow do we see them?
1: Well, we that's those are two very, very interesting questions because mm-hmm. one of them we know the answer to and one of them we don't.
0: Oh, okay. So sorry, I, I guess. My question, I thought, was a, was a rephrasing of the same question, which was, what's the slowest we've seen? But I guess you could also interpret it as, how slow can they be?
1: Yeah. So the slowest we've seen, well, and that we know of, is around about eight seconds. Mm-hmm. Because if you get any slower than eight seconds, then actually all the physics, the conditions needed to create this pulse, the radio emission, uh, no longer exists, they cease.
0: Oh, right? OK. So you could conceivably have... A pulsar spinning slower than that that you can't see, which I guess makes it not a pulsar anymore. It's just it's just a, it's just a neutron star at that point.
1: Yeah, yeah. But there's but it's still spinning and it's still sure. alive. Sure. I guess. And it'd be spinning for out as much of a life as you can be, it's a pulsar.
0: So would it be spitting out some energy or are you saying that the, the, all of that physics just fell over and it's actually it doesn't have any beams at all?
1: You don't yeah, you don't have a strong enough magnetic field to really create um, synchrotron radiation.
0: Okay. So it's just a spinning neutron star. Just a spinning neutron star. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, but so, 8 seconds so we can't we've seen see them. We've seen them what we so we've seen them that's that slow.
1: Eight seconds is the limit. I don't think we've only got any that are quite that slow. Right. Uh, we definitely have some that are on the um, whole seconds kind of scale. I'm not sure what the slowest one is, but it's around about there.
0: Cool. All right. So on our diagram, we started with the baby baby neutron stars up in the top left, and then we travel our way down to the bottom right, which is the pulsar graveyard. So is that it, is that it for our diagram?
1: Well it kind of would be except there's a group of pulsars that don't follow this trend at all
0: of course because the universe is weird and as if this wasn't weird enough okay so who are these who are these pulsars what are they what's their story
1: so there are some pulsars that are spinning very fast but they're also slowing down very slowly
0: they're spinning very so they're over on the left but they're down the bottom yeah Bottom left, they're
1: away, not separated from everybody else. What's yeah. going
0: on there? Who are they?
1: Well, these these are really interesting pulsars. These are pulsars in binary systems.
0: Okay, so they have a they have a what? a, a star companion.
1: Yeah. Well, usually another pulsar.
0: Okay, or, an, or at least
1: another neutron star.
0: Right. So why usually would it's that?
1: Another compact object. Yeah
0: why would that change how quickly or not quickly they're they're slowing down?
1: So the thing is, now you've not only got the rotation of the pulsar, but you've got an orbital uh, motion as well. Right. And there's interactions between objects that spin and objects that orbit. Uh, Our moon is the great example whereby the moon is orbiting the Earth, but it's also rotating. And over time, those two... uh, if you like rotations have interacted, and now the moon is rotating at exactly the same rate as it's orbiting the Earth.
0: It gets into lockstep. It's it's a, what's it called? Tidal tidal locking. Is tidal that right? locking. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Mercury does the same, doesn't it? In its yeah, way Mercury's a the sun. On its
1: way to being tidally locked to the sun. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. So with these two neutron stars in a, in a binary system, something similar, they they get tidally locked.
1: Yeah, well, all objects eventually will if they're spinning and orbiting. Then eventually, tidal locking is what's going to happen if you you know wait long enough in the universe. Uh, but what's yeah, I think probably just the easiest way to think about it is that there's now this extra component, this extra orbit that's messing about with the rotation of the pulsar, and so it does something a little bit different. Right. So doesn't could, slow down as fast.
0: Could that mean that it's it's harder in a sense? For the neutron stars to slow down because of this tidal locking. That that because the because their rotational motions in these different ways are kind of chained together, it kind of the the physics of that sort of says, Well, not so fast. You know, you could lose some energy by spitting out these beams, but it's gonna be pretty hard for us all to start slowing down the way you wanna. So we're just not going to. (laughs) We're just gonna keep spinning at this speed. Is it kinda is that kind of how it works?
1: Yeah 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 so you've you've got interaction between the two so you've got an energy source in some ways for some of these pulsars from the orbital energy
0: right that's very cool it's very cool. I hadn't thought yeah. about that before, but that's a really nice idea okay so that's the weird part of our diagram. are there any other weird parts of this diagram that we know? like is there anything up in the hang on we've got top top left, bottom left, bottom right is there anything Top right.
1: Well, look, I'm going to show you my diagram right now yeah. and see.
0: Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a good, not a very accurate mm, scientific diagram. that's no, yeah. I mean, it's there's a like lot of
1: stuff happens here. There's,
0: there's, a, there's a lot of room for manoeuvre there really, isn't there? I think we should. Uh, I think you should take a picture of that. We'll put that up in the show notes. Emily's Emily's diagram of pulsars. Um, okay, that gives us a lot to chew on about the the pulsars and the way that they age. The way they go from being newborn, spinning quickly, but but aging quickly out to the, the graveyard where they're just gradually slowing down. Unless they're in a binary system, in which case they're doing something else entirely. Which then kind of takes us on to the second part of, of David Weingartner's questions, which was... He said, I, I've also wondered at the lower limit of the size of neutron stars. I found some discussion online that, he says, modestly, I can, I can barely understand. Look, frankly, David, I think if you can understand at all, you're doing well. Um, but saw the value of 1.4 solar masses as, as being what, the lower limit of the size of neutron stars? Close to one and a half times the, the mass of our sun. So first of all, Emily, is that right? solar masses is the lower limit?
1: Well, it kind of depends on how you want to think about this. So (laughs) I looked into this from a few different perspectives. and It's never simple, is it? It's never simple. No, it's never simple. But it's interesting. And, okay, let's start from one perspective. Mm -hmm. One perspective could be you could ask, well, to determine the lower limit of a neutron star, if you just took neutrons and made them into a ball, what's the what's the smallest ball you could create with your neutrons, mm-hmm. right? Okay. And that minimum turns out to be about 0.1 solar masses, so a tenth the size right. of the sun. Right, tenth
0: the size. Okay, so that's that's the smallest that you could just naively compact stuff together and have it sitting there as a blob. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, yeah. So if you just yeah, gathered neutrons, threw them together until they stuck into a blob, then <laughs> yes. that's your smallest blob.
0: So what happens if you try to go smaller than that, that it just can't hold itself together? gravitationally, right. that it, it will fly enough, apart. It
1: doesn't have enough nuclear forces to hold into a sphere. Right, so okay. So it just sort of falls apart.
0: All right, so a tenth of a solar mass, but I'm guessing that that's, it's not that simple.
1: Yeah, no, not quite, because that's not definitely not how neutron stars are formed. No. <laughs> <Sorry>.
0: <laughs> it's much more violent than that.
1: It is, it is. Uh, so if we're going to look at real neutron stars, real neutron stars are formed um, from the collapse of material, Right. And we sort of alluded to a little bit um, how you crunch down stuff um, for a low-mass star and you get a a white dwarf. Yeah. Now, there's an upper limit on a white dwarf. A white dwarf star is uh, the core of an old star being crushed together, um, and it's held up by electron degeneracy pressure, right? So it's still got protons and neutrons floating around in this very dense ball, uh, but the electrons don't like being near each other. They can't be in the same um, quantum state. Yeah, right? It's a, it's a
0: weird quirk of quantum, quantum mechanics, isn't it? That certain types of particles, like electrons, like protons, don't like being in the same state. They don't like being uh, exactly the same. They have to be in different places, different orbits, different atoms they, they have to be different and the more you squeeze them down together the more they say no we're not going to do this and that itself forms a, a kind of pressure that helps to push against the, the gravity it's a, that degeneracy pressure so yeah
1: so stepping down through the physics if you like you can think about the the, the pressure or the force if you try to stick two negative charges together right mm-hmm. that's coulomb force yep. pushing those two apart you overcome coulomb force then you've got um, and you've still got this material then you can have the electron degeneracy pressure or this force which is pushing holding up everything inside yep. the star now there's a mass limit to your to your um, white dwarf star whereby if you exceed that then the gravity is too large it's going to overcome this electron degeneracy pressure
0: right and what happens at that point when you overcome that because the, the rules of quantum mechanics are quite Quite firm. It says, "No, you won't do this." So what kicks in at that point that says, "All right, all right, we found a loophole." How do you get past electron degeneracy rules?
1: So you can't stick the electrons any closer together. So you just get rid of the electrons. (laughs) It's
0: Ah, a simple way. So that's that's the electrons going, "Hey, proton over here. You and me form a neutron. We'll get past this," and you get you get neutrons, which is where you get a neutron star. but that only happens yeah. when you're above a certain mass. You got you got to have a, a lot of gravitational pull to get over that.
1: And that mass is 1.44 solar masses.
0: Okay, so that's so where this the one the 4, element. right? That's where that comes yeah. comes from. Is if you have that amount of mass, you have got enough gravity to say, "Come on, let's turn on that particular nuclear reaction. Let's get rid of the electrons. Let's make a whole bunch of neutrons and make some new kind of weird quantum sludge." called a neutron star
1: yeah and that would be a good way to say well that's therefore the um the size of a neutron star the minimum size because if it's more than more than 1.4 solar masses then you're going to get a neutron star that's bigger than that and if it's less than that no neutron star just get a
0: white dwarf sure okay seems seems reasonable you're about to tell me that it's not that simple either
1: it's not quite that simple (sighs) um unfortunately so, well, the problem is that you're not just talking about a, a ball of electrons and protons and neutrons that's just sitting out there in the vacuum of space, not doing anything. Right. Other things, uh, other bits of physics are involved. Rotation is a really important one. So actually rotation changes the physics of what you're doing because rotation can change maximum minimum um, sizes and limits and things. Uh, you've also got electromagnetic uh, forces in here. But what's, I guess, the most critical way you could describe your neutron star, the thing that everything depends upon for a neutron star is something called an equation of state. Mm -hmm. Um, And an equation of state is something that describes the internal workings of your neutron star, uh, how your pressure um, is related to the density inside your star.
0: Okay, so it's, it's trying to strip the... The description of a neutron star down to all right. What's a what's a few basic parameters that we can talk about? And it's what pressure, density, temperature, these yeah. sorts of
1: things. So equations of state, are, yeah, mostly to do with pressure and, and density. And well, actually, so people who've done some elementary physics, yeah, either like A-level physics or some um, early university physics, might already know of one very famous equation of state, which is called the ideal gas law.
0: Yeah, which is where I was kind of going with that. That's your sort of P V equals N R T, if that if you remember that from your from your high school days, and it's relating for a for a fluid or for a gas, an ideal gas, hence the name. What? P is pressure, V volume. N is the number, number the density, basically, isn't it? And R R is a number and T is the temperature. So it's relating it's relating pressure, volume, amount of gas, and temperature. In a, in a very elegant and, and quite simple way, and that's an ideal gas. So that's an example of what we would mean by equation of state, and you're saying that neutron stars have their own version of that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, in fact, it's a huge area of research um, that is going into how do you actually construct an equation of state of a neutron star? How do you test an equation of state of a neutron star? Very interesting. Um, so I guess to, to be able to do that, then we need some data on real neutron stars right we need to know okay we've got some some theoretical models we've got some um, equations of state that we want to to figure out which one is most accurate we need some hard data to kind of look at that sure and the first piece of data you need is of course the mass of your neutron star that's going to tell you a lot about the physics that you've got going on turns out that that's a really hard thing to try and measure again.
0: OK. And why is that so hard? I mean, I'm not going to deny it. it. It probably sounds quite hard. But why is that so hard? We can measure the mass of other things. Why is it so hard with neutron stars?
1: Well, it's, it's actually very similar to the problem of measuring the mass of any object in the universe. Um, you've got a free you know, star that's sort of floating out there in the galaxy. How do you measure its mass? You can't, you know, tip it on, a piece, on some scales. <laughs> you need some gravity to, to make it sit on some scales. Um, most of the ways that we measure mass for, say, a star are actually based on models of saying, well, the stars, are, you know, this temperature is probably about this density. Therefore, we can kind of figure out roughly what the mass is. And, you know, if we're off by, you know, the mass of the sun ish, that's maybe, you know, a good measurement.
0: Yeah, that's not that's not too bad. So what you're saying is that that while we're used to the notion of, well, we can just measure the mass of things here on Earth, actually in astronomy you've got to build up a chain of reasoning which is well we know this thing and we know that these things are like those things and they have influence on these other things and so through all of that we can infer the mass of this star or of this galaxy or of this whatever it is and with neutron stars you you need its own set of set of reasoning to be able to get to the mass and that's not simple
1: yeah And it's actually the same sort of reasoning and the same, we can do some direct measurements, just like we can do some direct measurements with stars. And those are stars or indeed neutron stars in binary systems.
0: Okay. Yes, I remember you saying in the past that binary systems gives us a whole bunch of information that we wouldn't normally be able to get.
1: Yeah, because you can understand the orbital properties, which are things you can observe, then it's just solving the uh, Kepler's laws or Newtonian mechanics to get... The individual masses of the two things in your system. Right, I see. So we can do this for binaries. We don't have a lot of um, neutron stars and binaries. Um, the latest sort of ply, so maybe on the order of twenty, uh, if we're lucky.
0: Well, that's that's enough to start with. At least that gives you some information.
1: Yeah. Um, so if you took these, take these twenty or so stars, then we get an average mass of uh, about one point three five solar masses.
0: Isn't that a bit lower than the one point four four?
1: It's a bit lower, but again, equation of state. That's yeah, allowed. okay, close
0: enough. All right, round it to the nearest one point four.
1: The typical errors on these measurements are about half a solar mass.
0: Okay, so so one point three five plus or minus a half. That's that that's yeah. in agreement. That's in experimental agreement with the uh, with the theoretical.
1: So it all sounds a bit bleak at this point, but I think what's interesting, and I, I I did look into a little bit more in these equations of state, is that it does start to at least narrow down. Some of these equations. So we we have different categories of equations of state. We call um, soft ones, which are um, where I guess they're uh, they're just more flexible. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're a bit spongier.
0: Yeah, they they they're happy to bend with the wind of of experimental evidence. Perhaps they they they're easily, well, yeah, easily no, no, they malleable. It is kind of a
1: yeah. Um, so these are these are um, less. I guess rigid stars you could think about. Um, so they have a maximum mass of something like one and a half solar masses. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you talk about a hard equation of state, then you can actually make that a little bit bigger. So with a hard equation of state or a kind of firmer, more rigid star, then you're getting up to two and a half times uh, the mass of the sun as your uh, okay. maximum. Okay. We do know. We do have. We do have some other sort of things to feed. And we do know that if you go larger than about 3.2 times the mass of the sun, then you've broken general relativity. So you're not allowed to do that.
0: Okay, right. Because we don't want to do that. That, that would upset Einstein and probably all sorts of physical principles as well. So let's not do that. So over three and a bit, uh, don't go there. But as long as we're under under three and a bit and more than about 1.4, we're well and truly within neutron star range. So that's all good.
1: Yeah, So I think it is quite good. We've got a range and we are trying to to use more and more measurements of these neutron stars to try and figure it out. But it's probably actually a fairly narrow range in the region of 1.35 solar masses for all
0: neutron stars. So that does then kind of answer David's question, doesn't it? He was he was asking, we've got the the value of around about 1.4, 1.35 solar masses. He then went on to say, what's the physical size? of these lower limit stars i mean i'm assuming he's talking sort of physical dimensions we're we talking a couple of couple of k's across then
1: yeah yeah we don't have really good measurements on this at all which is why we tend to prefer mass because mass is something we can directly measure from these binary systems right and then you could pick an equation of state and that will give you the radius but
0: but you don't, don't know you whether that's right so it's look it's going to be small very dense very compact sure let's say a couple of miles across um and in the order of 1.35, 1.4 solar masses. Okay. So the last thing that David asked was, are there small non-energy spewing invisible neutron stars traveling around the universe? And I guess this harks back to what you said before, which is look, as as um as you slow down a neutron star, you get to the point where the beams turn off, that the 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 processes that that create these energetic beams that that you know fly off across the universe and form these lighthouse type type beams that we can see. Those those um, processes can't work anymore once you start going slower than about eight seconds or so as your as your period. So does that mean that the universe could just have a whole bunch of invisible neutron stars that we that we don't see? It
1: could do. I think this is where. We've been really naughty, I think, as astronomers over the last few decades, whereby we have two definitions for what are broadly, at the moment, the same thing, but we don't actually know if they always are the same thing.
0: Sorry, is this neutron stars and pulsars or...?
1: That's neutron stars and pulsars. So we observe pulsars, right? We see the radio signal. That's how we know that the object is there. That's our measurement, if you like. We can measure, even when we're measuring these um, pulsars and binaries, we are measuring the binary orbit via that light. And we're not seeing these stars. They don't shed any optical light. So we don't. So are you um, saying that the
0: only neutron stars that we've ever observed are pulsars? All pulsars are neutron stars, but can you turn that around? And say all neutron stars are pulsars. Well, this is
1: a big question. So, all the ones we've we've observed, at least in the radio, by these like these lighthouse uh, effects, are pulsars
0: by now, definition. Have... I mean, that's you know that's a tautological statement, isn't it? This is where the naughtiness comes in.
1: We do have some measurements. <laughs> of neutron stars that are not from these, this signature. We have had neutron star mergers, which we have detected via the gravitational waves. Ah,
0: this is, this is LIGO and, and that crazy stuff over the last half a decade of measuring these ludicrously small effects of gravitational waves coming across the universe from when neutron stars collide... And that's one of the most energetic things ever, isn't it? That's a a crazy amount of energy given off, which we detect as one minute fraction of the size of an atomic width's wobble in space-time. I mean, it really is absolutely nuts. That's what you're talking about, these neutron star mergers.
1: That's what I'm talking about.
0: Ah, I hadn't thought about that. So you can see neutron stars through gravitational waves. What you don't know is... Were those neutron stars pulsars? Because you didn't see them that way. We don't know.
1: We didn't. They're far too distant for us to have detected, even if we had known that they were there beforehand, which we didn't.
0: But you would have known their masses, at least to some degree, from the gravitational wave measurements. Isn't that a thing?
1: Yeah, but their masses are kind of, yeah, in the range of this 1.35, et cetera. solar masses, right. It doesn't tell us... Were they in the pulsar graveyard, shall we say, of being rotating slower than or having periods longer than eight seconds?
0: The whole point of that plot is measuring the period, which you get from seeing the the things spinning around, which you're clearly not doing in this case. So you've got this gap, isn't, haven't you? Which is, yeah. on the one hand, everything that we've measured does this. But now we've got this other way of measuring things with gravitational waves, which is utterly disconnected from the other way that we used to look at these things. And at this point, no way to bridge that gap because... No,
1: no. not at this time, unfortunately.
0: Unless a a pair of neutron stars that you have been observing decides to fairly rapidly come in on itself and and merge, which you can watch, like that'd be cool, but you've only seen 20 of them. The chances of that is pretty slim. You'd have to be very lucky. yeah. Yeah. So
1: I think... If, if we just approached it from a logical point of view, it would seem like it would be a natural kind of thing that ne- neutron stars are born as pulsars and then maybe they if they live long enough, then they slow down and uh, then enter this pulsar graveyard and then just sort of hang out there for the rest of eternity, kind of like just dead remnants of stuff. But we have absolutely no evidence for that.
0: But, I mean, that's kind of cool. I hadn't, I hadn't actually appreciated that in all the reading that I'd done about the gravitational wave stuff. I hadn't... I hadn't put it together that it's it's this new way of doing neutron star stuff that is that is so different. I mean, that's that's very cool and very exciting. But it does kind of bring out, as you say, the, the naughtiness of the astronomers, which is, yeah, when we talk about neutron stars, we're really talking about this thing. And maybe there's a whole side to them that we don't know about because we don't measure them
1: that way yeah and it's i think it's fair to say that quite a lot of models of neutron stars kind of ignore the fact that they might be pulsars (laughs) it's kind of easy to ignore the magnetic well it's not easy it's it makes the maths easier sometimes if you ignore the magnetic field
0: (laughs) (laughs) magnetic fields just mess everything up really in terms of the maths it just makes it so much harder and yet that's a fairly significant component of the whole pulsar thing is the magnetic field, so maybe ignoring those, hmm.
1: But to be fair, you can use this data now to send, so we've got data from the masses of the pulsars that we've been measuring to work out what the equation of state actually is. We've now got a whole set of new data that's completely um, you know, disassociated with that, that should be telling us the same answer, but from a different set of physics. So those two hopefully will start to converge very
0: soon. Well David David Weingarten I really hope that, that that this episode has answered your questions I think we've we've certainly given it a red hot go anyway Emily I I think we've done neutron stars and pulsars in about as much detail as we're going to be able to for a while. I'm not saying we'll never talk about them ever again, but I think we've done a pretty good job.
1: Oh, I love them. They're really, really good. I'm, <laughs> I'm so excited to learn about the p Diagram.
0: Oh, yes. I mean, that's that's made my day. I'm going to go and talk to my family about that over here in isolation and really, really make their week. Listen, we are going to have to find our way out of this one. If you want to get in touch with us, like David did, you've got a burning question coming out of one of the episodes that you've just listened to or some other question about your wonderings and ponderings about the universe. You can get in touch with us. There's all sorts of different ways that you can get in touch with us. Emily, name some
1: we are socially isolating on the internet
0: we are social isolation media so we
1: are at syzygy pod on twitter so s-y-z-y-g-y pod on twitter on the facebook on the instagram on well syzygy.fm the website
0: that's right i mean i think yeah we'll we'll call it quits on the social media there for a while we're not going to do TikTok or anything like that that's just silly um but yes syzygy.fm there you can find all of our past episodes all of the show notes you can find a contact form which is what David did, get in touch with us and send us some questions. Or you can just, you know, send us a message through, through Twitter or through Facebook or whichever format you prefer. The bottom line is, get in touch. Say hi, tell us what's on your mind. If you want to help out the show, a couple of different ways that you can do that. You can, I mean, the biggest thing is talk it up. Spread the word. Tell people that you reckon might have an interest in the world of astronomy, astrophysics, the universe, the cosmos, and tell them you've found this amazing show called Syzygy. Spread it around. It helps us to rise up through the noise. The other thing you can do is leave us a review and a bunch of stars on your podcast client of choice. And one last way that you can help us if you're, if you're interested in uh, helping us to keep the lights on and the electrons flowing through the Syzygy podcast universe, is to go over to uh, Patreon and become a patron of the show. Patreon.com slash SyzygyPod and, uh, and sign up to become a financial supporter of the show and we will be forever in your gratitude. Uh, It helps us to keep the website going. It helps us to uh, keep the Syzygy.fm domain name. And it helps us to plan new things for the future. We do live events. We like to go to podcast festivals when they're running, when you can go outside and do stuff. We'll be wanting to do that in the future. So if you want to do that, we would love you forever. That would be fantastic. But otherwise, I think it's time to finish this one up. So we'll be back again in about a week or two. Until then, Emily, I'll catch you later. See you later. Bye, everybody.
1: That's for my notes
0: on 45 this, Notes on 45, which oh. is different from stars on 45 which is the sun.
1: Here it is, episode 45 is written on loose paper instead of in my notebook On uh, the back of my notes that I made for my Are you allowed to live here forever test? Ah, there you are So it also has um, pieces of information on it that are quite useful. For example, the fact the population of the UK in 1600 was 4 million people. Hmm.
0: Important to know when you're going to become a uh, permanent resident and potentially a citizen is how many people have lived in the country 400 and something years ago. Yeah, really important.